Are you listening to Discovery Debrief? And uh, so did I. It's Jason Isaacs, who was, at some point, some version of Captain Lorca. Right now, I'm just a fan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Strange New Worlds, Lower Decks, and more. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Hey! Zaki Hassan. Hello! And Cicero Holmes. I have nothing clever to say. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a Tuesday, man. I, I I I don't think that anybody would blame you for that. We, you know, we should we should mark this moment as we record this. It is exactly two weeks before the election. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, we, if we all sound like just a, a clenched ball of of stress, that's why. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. What's what's funny is. Uh, there was there was the episode our lost episode uh that was an episode that we recorded back in December which is which is only i mean 6 8 weeks away now um that but we released that episode in June of 2020 and the differences in the tone from December of 2019 to June of 2020 was was very very stark. Uh, yeah, this has been little, a hell of a decade. Little, little this did year. we know in December of 2019 that we were about to be like sideshow Bob in a parking lot full of rakes. Right. <laughs> 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 For the rest of the year. That was For it. the yes, yes. Uh, and we didn't even know by June. Right. The insanity that would still be coming over the next several months. Yeah. So, I think all of us are, are are happily anticipating the end of the election season. Yeah, and uh, you know, fingers crossed that it goes the way that I know that we all hope. But either way, I think a- anybody can agree that uh, this has been a, a it's been a season already. Yes, but it feels like it's been going on for way too long. But anyway. Everybody, we're finally here after what waiting for what seems like a very long 18 months. That's how long it's been since the second season finale. Our namesake series, the one that brought us all together in the first place, the one and only Star Trek Discovery, has finally returned with a brand new season. And obviously, this wait wasn't nearly as painful as it otherwise could have been, strictly speaking about Star Trek content, I assure you, because we've had other series like Picard and Lower Decks in the interim, but this still feels very different since this season, Discovery is pushing eons past canon and taking the franchise quite literally where it has never gone before. So before we actually jump into our episode discussion, I'd like to just catch up because this is the full panel. It's been a while since we've all gotten together. So, Zachy, in addition to bearing the brunt of 
being a teacher in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, how else have you been doing? Uh, well, you know, first of all, thanks. Thanks again for, for putting this show together and just having this panel. I feel bad that I tend to pop in infrequently. I'm starting to feel like the John Delancey. This <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what are we doing now? <laughs> but, um, uh, no, you know, it's, it's, it's so nice to have uh, Star Trek back in my life. Uh, I've, I've been catching up on lower decks, which is why I wasn't on our last episode. I'm still, I think like three episodes out from finishing that. Um, but uh, having the, the new show, the new season, which honestly feels like a totally new show is great but tangentially connected to what we were talking about before we got on the show. Uh, Cicero, you were talking about the Orville, which stars Scott Grimes, and I am currently wrapping up my rewatch of ER, which starred oh. Scott Grimes for the, the latter half of that series' run. And and I'm like, I'm in the final season. There's 15 seasons of television oh is about gosh. to wind down. And, and and I don't know I don't know what happens after I'm done with the ER. I think I just walk solemnly into the ocean. I don't I don't know what's left. Um, and it's it's a really good show. If if you if y'all never seen ER before, I mean ER. You know what I mean? That's one of those shows where everyone's heard of it. And it's like I should watch that one of these days. And uh, I, I I did watch it initially when it first started, but my wife had not seen any of it. So I was like, oh, we should watch a little bit of this. And then six months later, we have blazed through the entire thing. Wow. And Man. I guess it just wow. it says something about quarantine life that binge watching 15 seasons of television goes at or near the top of my list of accomplishments. For, for <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, that I, is, feel, uh... I feel a little too proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I mean, that's a that's a brisk pace. I think is, <laughs> is pretty fair to say. Um <laughs> Rachel and I, our show that we binged, at least the primary one that we binged for the quarantine was actually Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, nice. Oh, man. Yeah, that was was a lot of fun. So the result is, too, that Esri loves the theme song and we sing it to her and she just has a big smile light up on her face. And so we say, look, Esri, it's Grandpa Grandpa Larry. What's Grandpa Larry getting up to now? So we we had a lot of fun with that. Rachel, you have returned. You are holding our daughter right now. So she yes. will probably have a, a guest appearance on she this episode. She won't sleep. Um, yeah, yep. So inform the fine listener base of Discovery Debrief what major occurrences have been happening with you lately. What? Oh, yeah, I got my PhD. What? Oh, my God. See, this is the, the true malevolence of 2020 is that a monumental uh, achievement like that she still had to search for it, you know, in, in spite of everything. But yeah, you got your PhD. You're it's true. You're Doctor Mommy now. Yeah. No, cool. it's Doctor Cloud. Doctor Cloud. That's her name. That <laughs> name again is Doctor Cloud. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to make that happen. Like a dub or something. You can, you can put it on your voicemail. Be perfect. But what else? So how how have you been enduring all of this insanity besides having to, you know, live live in close quarters to me? 
Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't know? Um, you know? She's so burned out. She's so burned out by this. <laughs> what? Like, I honestly, I don't know. What do I do all day? I, I'm not sure. You were in a transitionary period. Yeah. I, uh, I finished my PhD. I don't have a job yet. So I take care of the baby all day. And um, I guess watch TV. I guess I'm watching Seinfeld. Yeah, but, uh, Curb Curb inspired her right, to, right. to start taking oh, nice. a look at Seinfeld. Had you not yeah. watched it before? Uh, no, I'd seen most of the episodes on syndication when I was a kid, but not all of them. Right. Um, and then also, like, I understand that they, they hit different when you're an adult. Yes, and, yes, yeah. definitely. Um, it's kind of funny, though, because I find myself like, I'm like, oh, wow, Seinfeld's so relatable. And then Chris is like, this show is just about bad people doing bad things. For whatever reason, I have an aversion to the show, I think, because of Jerry Seinfeld. Like, mm. if, I, if, if you have to bisect the camps between Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, I'm way more of a Larry David guy. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, yet- I... You two both share an affinity for Superman. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's, that is true. And I, I, I respect that. I don't know. I, the, the, the shows are entertaining It's just for, for whatever reason, it hasn't really connected with me, but it doesn't matter. I mean, he also likes cereal and you like cereal. Well, right. Cool. Yeah. There you go. Perhaps it's because you see too much of yourself, too yourself. in him and you're like, <laughs> no, thank you. Clearly we're the same person. The only difference is about a billion dollars, I think. But uh, <laughs> that's no. a small difference. Small well, difference. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah very, yeah. very inconsequential. Minor. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, Cicero, you were uh, obviously the, the the person I recorded with last, but yeah. um, how how have you been doing? Or have you continued into season four of TNG by now? No, I have not. And, and you know, so what's what's funny is uh, I have really like so I was at a a a warp pace, uh, pun intended, uh, burning through the first three seasons of. TNG and I stopped at best of both worlds. Hmm. So I finished. So on our last recording, which was just uh, to be honest, just a few days ago, I had just finished watching uh, Menage Troy and the next episode was transfiguration. And the episode after that is the end of season three, best of both worlds part one. And I watched Transfiguration, but I wanted to be able to watch both episodes of of Best of Both Worlds in one sitting. And I haven't had that time yet. I think that that's an understandable desire on your part. Um, You know, they, they actually theatrically exhibited both parts of Best of Both Worlds together when the remaster of TNG came out. And that was... That was a lot of fun. Right. But uh, it actually, you know, and Zachy, I'll be curious about your opinion on this. I feel like I actually prefer to watch it separately because the transition between parts one and two is just so good. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is the 
like I can hear the music in my head. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, from from the time we see Picard as a Borg up till Mr. Warp fire, I can hear it all in my head. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. It's, it, and I love the story of Patrick Stewart talking about driving around LA uh, in the summer in between seasons three and four and how a family pulled up in a minivan right beside him and yelled at him, you ruined our summer. <laughs> but, but, you, know, you know, you know, my story with that episode is I was, uh, you know, I was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. We used to visit the States every summer. So uh, summer of the, uh, it was 89, right? Um, yeah. so, so, summer of 89 where the, yeah. And it's like that, that window of time when Batman was about to come out, whatever. Um, we, uh, they, they show the, they show best of both worlds part one. And, and I'm, I was, I'm nine. Right. So I don't even have a real concept of like a season ending cliffhanger. Like I don't really know that. So I, it, it ends and I'm like, Oh, Oh my gosh. Okay. I guess we resolve it next week. And then next week was the yesterday's enterprise rerun. <laughs> like, wait a minute. What? You know, and, and then we go back to Saudi Arabia. So I had to wait a whole until next summer when we came back to, to visit to know if Picard was still on the show. Oh, no. <laughs> this is before the Internet, before any of that stuff. Right. I had no idea. Right. And Dad, why don't you just watch the next episode on Netflix? <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's wrong with you? Oh. you know, and so, so even I didn't end up seeing the actual episode uh, part two until uh much later like when we moved back to the states you know i just knew okay picard came back somehow but i didn't know how (laughs) wow man yeah i well so another reason that i'm waiting is that a lot of times i watch these episodes right before i go to sleep and um so often what will happen is i will fall asleep on the in the middle of an episode um, and then wake up and at some point in the future, I will, you know, pick up the episode where I left off. And that is not something that I want to do with this. Like, I want to be able to watch these episodes completely um, because I know how important they are and, and uh, you know, how good they are. So, well, sure. uh, yeah. So, like, no, I I'm- just I want to give them the attention that they deserve. Absolutely. Uh, I totally understand the inclination. I think my daughter agrees with you. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's good to know. Well, Esri, um, Esri always agrees with uncle Cicero. So. <laughs> she, she knows, she knows what's up. Absolutely. That's right. Um, well, before we actually jump into the episode discussion, I wanted to gauge the panel's thoughts on some recent news. Um, so let's, let's do that first. I think it's pretty safe to say that right now our cup runneth over, right? Because in a, uh, a recent piece of Trek movie sourced from an issue of SFX magazine, Star Trek's current steward, Alex Kurtzman, talked about how he's in the midst of preparing three different Trek series to go into active production. And he also said that if not for COVID, then Picard would already be shooting. Uh, please protect Mr. Stewart, everybody. Right. But um, he also gave some service to the idea that forthcoming Pike and Enterprise-centric series Strange New Worlds actually benefited from the pandemic. He said the silver linings are that Akiva Goldsman and Henry Alonzo Myers are ready to show up and able to get ahead with scripts. 
By the time we go back into production, we'll have a lot of scripts ready to go, which is not usually how it is for us. We're always running ahead of the freight train and that that is production and trying not to get flattened. But this time we actually have some advance warning with a lot of prep time. And Kurtzman also said that though he's not involved with the franchise on film anymore, he'd like to see those two divisions unify since the continuity and unification between them would be, quote, good for Star Trek. So, guys, this feels like an embarrassment of riches since we have so much Trek to keep us busy. But what do you make of all of this movement that the franchise is seeing, particularly since it was so dormant for so long? Zachy? Well, I think this is what the streaming age allows for. You know, I mean, for if this were if we're talking about the old network paradigm or the or the uh, syndication paradigm, you know, I mean, that in Star Trek got squeezed out of that. You know, that's what we saw on EPN. And yet in uh, with with the, the the ecosystem of CBS All Access slash Paramount Plus, suddenly Star Trek is a the, the big fish in a small pond. And yeah. it incentivizes them to keep this to keep the spigot on. You know, I, I you know me, this has been my mantra ever since we started this show. If you don't like this flavor of ice cream, there's plenty of flavors for everybody. But we are living that right now. My gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Uh, Cicero, what do you make of it? Uh, I'm scared, man. Um, I'm terrified uh, because it makes me think of Icarus. I I think we, you know, I think there is a there is a chance that we are flying too close to the sun. I know that last uh, last time you guys heard my voice. I I probably had said something about the fact that I thought that there may be uh, too, you know, I was worried about there being too many shows, but because tonally lower decks was so very different, um, it, it washed that fear away. Um, But I don't want them to keep like, I don't want them to keep flooding us with, new series and new franchises to create the type of fatigue that no fan really, really wants. Uh, So that, that part worries me, but the part that is good and what Kurtzman said is, is the fact that Akiva Goldsman and and the rest of the writers have had a chance now to actually go through and flesh out some scripts and, and create an entire cohesive story um, before they start shooting, as Kurtzman, as we had had kind of um, uh, pre- not predicted, but but uh, surmised as we were uh, doing our reviews of episodes and of seasons of of you know uh, both of Discovery and of Picard, where it seemed like towards the latter half of those seasons they had so many more ideas than they had actual time to film them. And, and it, you know, it wound up uh, compacting a lot of story into very short periods of time. And I think that this, this, because of COVID, the, the blessing in disguise is they can now flesh out those stories so that we don't have the, the same issue that we had at the end of season one and the end of season two of Discovery and, and quite frankly, the end of uh, season one of Picard. Uh, so uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, as far as the films, like 
CBS All Access is supposed to become Paramount, whatever Paramount Plus, or what you know, whatever dumb name they decide to <laughs> to, to brand this, you know, brand the service that I'm paying money for uh, into. So, like, yes, you can marry all that stuff, but but like the idea, the thought behind the idea makes sense and and would would potentially lead to more engagement through you know throughout the entire fandom. Um, it just opens itself up to more and more problems. Like you can't have a show with uh, Pike and Spock on the streaming service and then have a movie with Kirk and Spock and it's a different Spock and then say they're all in the same universe. Right. So, so you think then that, uh, Kelvin timeline on the big screen is not the way to go. No. Uh, yeah. I just think it just opens itself up for just so many problems. Like the last thing you really need to do with Star Trek fans is create paradoxes, like real world paradoxes within your fandom. Because if there's any group of fans that will find those things and will take to Twitter or, you know, take two spaces and talk about those problems uh, in very, and, and, you know, and responsible and real ways that have to be answered for, it would be Star Trek fans. Like the whole point behind us is that we're uber nerds. So like you don't create these types of, you know, if you're going to create a paradox with, with this kind of stuff, do it in another series. Like you'd be better off doing it in Star Wars than you would be in Star Trek. Well, I think one of the big tests in terms of that will probably be whenever Warner Brothers gets its act together and releases a Flash movie, right? Because, you know, the TV show conceivably is going to still be running for a while. Right. And um, people have already been introduced to a cinematic version of The Flash. And if those things are concurrently running and that's a movie that's going to have Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck playing at least two different versions of Batman. Right. Um, you know, nowadays, I think the audience is sophisticated enough to keep up with that. But I don't think that diminishes your point. I think you- I think it's different in comics where you've already established parallel universes. Right. Where you've 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 gone ahead and you said that we've got. um different and you know and now that they've united the worlds in in the new 52 and and uh flashpoint uh for uh or, or infinite earths on uh on the on the arrowverse i guess or the flashverse whatever it is comic book fans have been conditioned to to understanding that there will be multiple versions of this character played you know as different people because that's already been established as canon. Um, where where Trek did it in the Kelvin timeline as this goofy time paradox. But like they haven't done it where they would be contemporaries. When they do that, they have the mirror universe and each character is played by the same actor, and it's just a mirror version of them, not by different actors. And you say, oh, well, we're 25 years apart, and that is why we look slightly different. Sure. Yeah. I think I, think I understand where you're coming from. Rachel, 
What do you think about this? Oh, Esri has an opinion too. Of course you do. Yeah. You know, she was quiet the whole time you guys were talking. Um, <laughs> well, give her a chance to, you know, like you never talk, call on her specifically, Dad. <laughs> she has opinions not. about this. She cares about fandom. She cares about <laughs> canon. And, and nothing excites Esri more than time paradoxes. Of course not. No. <laughs> Everything is a time paradox to her. <laughs> right. <laughs> got a time paradox in my diaper. Yes. But um, the, the the mass, you know, proliferation of Star Trek and the movies and how do, do you think that that stuff should intersect? Should it stay separate? I I think that it's a nice wish that he has to sort of combine the uh, movies and the TV. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I don't, I think Trek, it, it's become apparent that Trek works better as a show than a movie. Um, and I honestly, like, I don't know what movies are going to look like after next year. Sure. Right. Um, because the whole ecosystem is going to be really profoundly changed. Um, and I think that they are going to have to think about the economics of movies in a different way and what they produce and how they distribute. And um, so I don't think that that's going to happen with a like a theatrical movies in the Kelvin timeline being produced and or you know, something like a discovery movie or something being theatrically released. I do think they might do sort of made for CBS all access or whatever it's going to be called in the future, like uh, movies for that. Um, it's been a long road. Yeah, they could do that. Um, like things that anything that's going to be released on streaming, I think is, you know, probably good to go, but Yeah. Show me president. Give me, give me Star Trek West Wing with President Archer. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I uh, yeah, and no, I I feel good about it. I feel like they, like I would be so happy if there was just always a Star Trek on, like one going on CBS All Access. It seems like, like that that's would, the direction they're moving. Yeah, like that would make me happy. If there starts to be like overlapping ones, I think that it you know might be a little bit saturated, but. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows how I feel? Because, you know, like Lower Decks is so different from Picard and from Discovery. And, and yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think that that's a good point, too, though, because one of the things that Cicero and I talked about last time was that the arrival and apparent success of Lower Decks almost turned Star Trek into a medium uh, onto itself. Yeah, kind of. You know, it's, it's just it delivers different Kind of different stories within different genres, but in the encapsulation of this this one universe or multiverse or however you want to look at it. But it just goes back to what Zachy said about ice cream flavors. Yeah. There's plenty of them and they're making more on a regular basis. So excellent. All right. Well, um, I think we'll we'll leave the news discussion there because we have we have quite an episode to talk about here. Um, and this is a very. Oh, I'm interested in, in getting into it with you guys. So let's let's jump into our discussion for the season three premiere of Star Trek Discovery, That Hope Is You, part one. 
Before we dive in, I just want to say that I find it very interesting that all of the announced episode titles for this full season have been revealed, and there is no part two to this. Uh, I, I don't really know what to make of that, but uh, I find that very interesting. Are they just reserving that Hope Is You part two for season four or maybe later? But one other thing, did, did you, have you guys seen the episode titles yet? Check this out. One of them is called Unification 3. Oh. And I have no idea what that is supposed to be. Yeah, right? And it's written by by Kristen Beyer, who is probably, my perception is like she's the canonical authority in the writer's room. Um, So that's just insane to me. I'm going to be really, that one is, I think it airs in late November, but either way, that's, that's a future episode. So let's talk about the season premiere. So in 3188, Aditya Sahil awakes each day to carry out an uninterrupted routine of manning an old Federation relay station. Meanwhile, we meet Cleveland Booker, who's fleeing another craft, trying to apparently regain cargo that it's that the pilot says Booker stole. But then his vessel detects a space-time anomaly and accidentally collides with Commander Michael Burnham, who emerges from the wormhole in her Red Angel suit. Both Burnham and Booker's vessel fall to Hema, with Burnham barely managing to regain control of her suit before impacting in a remote location. After crash landing, she emerges from the suit and being unable to contact Discovery, but confirming that the suit detects life, meaning that control was foiled, as she intended, Burnham sends the suit back through the anomaly to relay the seventh and final signal to Spock, and it subsequently self-destructs after that, at least as far as we know. Alone, Burnham walks toward the crash site of the ship she impacted by following its column of smoke. This was a hell of a beginning to to the season premiere. I mean, already it feels shockingly different from what we've seen before. And I'm not sure exactly if it's just, maybe it's the way that it's composed. Maybe it's the idea that um, being stranded just makes it feel strangely more alien. Um, but obviously the, the elation that uh, Sinequa Martin-Green portrays when she discovers that life still exists by the year 3188. That was really cool. It was a nice sort of punctuation to what we saw in the in the second season finale. But a lot of stuff happened here right at the very beginning. Um, and obviously we knew going into it that it was taking place in the pretty far-flung future. So right out of the gate, um, as Burnham starts walking alone toward the crash site she saw. Cicero, why don't you start us off? What was in your head as Discovery is finally back and it's starting us off in a very different place? Well, uh, I mean, I think the first thing was, uh, where's the ship? Uh, you know, and, and we, we, we do get to see two ships fighting each other or one trying to escape from one, you know, another, uh, and like, I wasn't exactly sure where we were when it came, when it came to that, uh, and like what was happening with that. Uh, but like, as far as Burnham, it was just like, where's the ship? Where is everybody? Uh, and, and like, it was good to see 
this character again and and like be able to remark on how good her hair always looks um in in spite of the fact that she's flying through space and plummeting to the ground and and doing all of these crazy things um but but also like because they're in uncharted territory i don't know if it's if it is uh, a coincidence but i felt like we were now with them by themselves like that like that uh michael burnham has discovered, has has established herself as a character within star trek like uh you know we got the introduction in season 1 season 2 she got to prove that it wasn't a fluke in season 3 here we are like all of those questions have been answered now we get to see her story and the story of this crew when the ship finally arrives um so that's kind of where where i was was like Oh, let me see what you got. You know, now now that you're not a rookie or a neophyte or or a sophomore um anymore. Now you're just a vet. Let's see what you got. Excellent. Well put. Zachy, the return of discovery and uh in this teaser, what do you make of it? You know, just just tonally and aesthetically, I like I like watching this and not having an idea what's going on like that that to me uh and it, this applies just as much to the the episode as a whole but i mean specifically the the, the teaser i think it, it situates us in exactly the same position as as our main characters you know we are all figuring out this new the new status quo at the same time and I, that 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 is intriguing and i kind of like that you know, discovery has found a place for itself within the timeline that allows it to stand completely apart uh, in in both execution and goal from the other two shows that are going to be, you know, in production at the same time. I think that's a very smart approach uh, that franchise is taking in general right now. Well, un- unfortunately, uh, Doctor Mommy has to be more of a mommy, so she we'll we'll see if she can come back later. But she had to jump off the call because uh, our 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 ensign required something from Doctor Mommy's replicator. So uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll keep things going here. But um, no, I think that I think both of you guys make really interesting points. Um, it, it, it obviously it is still early on uh, in the episode, but. Um, it definitely did make an impression with me, but let's let's move along with the uh, with the plot. So Burnham meets Booker, and after a brief tussle, Booker welcomes Burnham aboard his ship and starts to put together that something is off about her as she marvels at the thirty second century technology that she's seeing. She accompanies Booker to the planet Requiem, a market planet, to try and find a dilithium recrystallizer, where she learns that quantum slipstream drive technology has become the norm. A nice little nod to Voyager there. Booker also tells her about his cat Grudge, which he says is enlarged by a thyroid condition. I think there's more to that. And uh, that the Federation hasn't actually existed for hundreds of years since the burn saw dilithium and starships across the galaxy detonate, which leaves the Federation and Starfleet in particular in shambles. Um, 
obviously, you know, the, the pre-release materials for season three of Discovery seem to indicate that the Federation was a distant memory. Something happened that, uh, that took it out of the sort of hegemonic position that we have seen in previous series. So I don't think that that was an abundant surprise considering um, what we had seen from the show uh, leading up to, to discovery season three, but um, pretty brutal uh, dispatching of the Federation. And it definitely has like a, an air of mystery to it, but um, it does feel appropriate to me that a galaxy without the Federation feels very, very directionless. And I know that that was probably the intention but um, really, if you want to try and create a Star Trek series that is far away from every other element of the franchise that we've seen, even far beyond Daniels' time that we met in Enterprise, um, this is a, an interesting way to go about it. And it instantly gives Burnham, who is, I, th- I think she can be accurately described as a Federation patriot. She It, it gives her... Uh, a problem to solve in in an entirely in an entirely new environment, and um, and a problem that she's never had to tackle before because there are remnants of the Federation that are still scattered. We don't know that yet by this point in the episode, but it's something that we learn. But um, just in terms of the Federation being removed from the seat of power and the way that like the the drip of information that we've gotten so far about what took it out, uh, Zachy, what do you make of that? I think uh, I I think w- w- the way I see it is it's and I should say it I was going to say it is but it's setting us up for potentially a really interesting dissection of how many of the trappings the familiar trappings of Star Trek can we peel away and still have Star Trek right I think I think that's the central arc that that this season is going to tackle you know. Uh, and I think that the nice thing about that is it gives uh, the Discovery crew something really unique to to do in this in this universe. I mean, if I had a critique of the earlier seasons, it was that I was like, it's just another ship, right? Uh, it's just another ship. It's just another crew. I mean, yeah, they're great and whatever, but it you know it 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 uh, it it didn't feel especially unique. And if anything, the ways in which it sort of bucked visual canon, you know, was always a little bit of a grind, at least for me. Uh, and I like that now it's like, no, let's, let's tackle this question. Of like, well, what, what is Star Trek? What, what is the, that, that core of um, optimism? How do we retain optimism in the, in, in the face of such crushing uh, dystopia, you know? Mm-hmm. Before I move on to, to Cicero, let me ask you, Zachy, um, do you think that partially the, it, that question could have been answered by season one of Picard? I mean, obviously, the Federation is still around by the time that show takes place, but a lot of the familiar trappings like the command structure and the institution backing Picard and taking place on a starship, that stuff was absent. Is that kind of a... a, a lower step of a dry run to what discovery is doing here or are they wholly separate? Mm. No, I I think there, there, there is, there is some connected tissue there, but I mean, to me, I, I view Picard much more as a personal journey, right? It's, 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 
it's really about Captain Picard viewing, you know, you know what he said. It wasn't the Federation anymore, right? So this is this is him, kind of. He's a broken man, and it's about him reclaiming his own core of optimism. And and so there is that that connection. I think that 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 links both of these shows. Uh, but I think I think aspirationally, Discovery has has uh, a bigger reach in front of it right now. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. very understandable. Uh, Cicero, what do you make of um, the information that we? Well, I mean everything. The information that we gleaned about the Federation, seeing a little bit more of Booker, uh, meeting Grudge. How did all of this? part of the episode combined for you well i mean it's all of that it was was really cool um you know i I mean personally i love the fact that uh, we have spent we have spent uh probably the first 10 20 minutes of the episode uh seeing characters and who have we seen we've seen an indian person We've seen two black people and we've seen an extraterrestrial, uh, you know, like we have yet to see a white person on the screen. Uh, and that was super cool. Uh, I I mean, that's something that discovery has done a really great job of, you know, one of the first things that we said, um, in, in, when we started this series, uh, three years ago was Rachel saying that it, it, broke the, you know, it passed the Beckdale test in the first scene. Um, and so like just the level of uh, progressive and forward thinking uh, on the show and, and to know that it's not by accident, like this is on purpose um, is, is remarkable. But, but the, from a philosophical standpoint, I think it's about uh, showing like what what Zaki was saying, I think Zaki's spot on um, with with his assessment of the season, or at least is very astute. And I hadn't even thought about it until he said it. Um, but like in, in different from Picard, in so much that like you know, yes, Picard could have been about hope and and been about uh, you know uh, understanding the Federation at that time and 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 reinvigorating it, uh, with, with hope. Um, I think now, and this, this season and this series now can be about the enduring promise of what Starfleet is and what the federations, what those ideals were, uh, both in Starfleet and in the, and the UFP, uh, you know, as a whole, uh, and how they can proliferate those ideals to a new culture, you know, what, what still exists 200 years, 300 years after the Federation has collapsed. Um, what of those ideals still exist in the people that are still, um, you know, carrying the torch for it. And how can we show that those ideas are, are great and how can we make them proliferate in, into the future and show that they these are the the great ideals of the universe and they deserve to endure throughout time. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, when comparing the state of affairs with the Federation to what we saw in Picard, Picard and its approach feels very timely to 
the the world that we live in right now you know the the hegemonic authority seems to have it, it still exists but it seems to have lost its way and um and that absolutely has a place but this takes things a step further and arguably could be more representative of a reality that a lot of people are seeing right now in that what's the difference between that authority losing its way and not acting and that authority just not existing altogether for some people um, and, and taking it in a direction that really tries to examine what those values represent when the institution behind them is gone seems like it has a lot of significant potential, at least from where I'm sitting. But, um, you know, it, obviously it takes things in a way that is uh, a, a bit on a grander scale, let's say, than, than what Picard played with, but it's still kind of in the same ballpark. And um, that's saying something. If that's where Star Trek is right now across the board, then, um, I mean, it's, it's troubling, but it's also timely. So <laughs> it is what it is, right? Um, well, let's move along with the plot. So on Requiem, Booker betrays Burnham and steals her 23rd century artifacts to try and make his own way in getting a recrystallizer. Burnham is detained and sprayed with a purple truth gas, and she starts telling her captors about where she's from and more about Booker. That leads them all to try and uh, corner Booker. And after sharing a moment, Burnham and Booker actually work together to escape and eventually transport into a body of water evading capture for the moment apparently that's enough to to evade capture uh burnham's been injured by a shot on her arm booker uses telepathic abilities to call a hema water plant forth from the water and a liquid extracted from its leaves will prevent infections he then reveals he carries a device that can communicate via subspace which is annoying to burnham but is also weirdly um amusing to her as well um, but she tries to use it. She's not able to contact Discovery. That's when uh, Booker asks her flat out if she's a time traveler, which Burnham confirms. And he notes to her that time travel was outlawed after the temporal wars. And I just can't help but conjure images of, uh, of Enterprise right there. So, um, Zachy, let me throw it to you first two things. First of all, the relationship, the burgeoning relationship that Burnham and Booker have. Uh, is this a, a pairing that you're bought into? Can you see yourself going on the full journey for the season with these two people? And also too, um, the, the the temporal wars. What do you make of that stuff? So so I'll start with the second part first. The te- as soon as he said temporal wars, uh, I went, in, in true Scooby-Doo fashion, because as you know, a massive uh, fan of Enterprise, so I I hope that that uh, is connected in some way to to that series. Maybe maybe even obliquely offering some resolution you know, to that plot line, which was never uh, tied off properly. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope I, I'm hopeful. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case, you know. But but I'm, I'm curious to see. And then as far as the the romantic, I mean, like let's be real. Like as soon as we saw him. We're like, oh, okay, well, this, this is going to be the love interest for the season, you know. Uh, as, as soon as they start doing their magnificent Bickerson's thing, you're like, all right. And then, you know, in like <laughs> the, the, this season on, you see them kissing. You're like, all right, cool. I, I like him. I think he's a cool character. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
very charming. I think I think it's very charismatic. So I'm I'm down. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Cicero, how about you? The pairing of uh, of Burnham and Booker, or maybe even just Booker as a character so far in meeting our leader, our fearless leader on Discovery, and also you know the the temporal wars. Well, uh, so I like that actor. Um, he for for fans of the Arrowverse, he was on Supergirl. He played Manchester Black. Um, and uh, so, uh, what was who, cool, who who is a villain in one of my all time favorite issues of Action Comics? By the way, there, there you go. Um, so so what's what's funny is yet again here is a prolific British actor with an American accent, um, playing you know playing a great character, but could have played it as British, um, and didn't. Um, which actually, what, you, you he, know what? I'm not sure. Doesn't he? Yeah, I thought his accent. Yeah, was yeah, British. yeah, British. Yeah, he is British. Yeah, yeah. You know what's what's funny is I just like it just translates to American now all the time. Um, <laughs> so like, yeah, I just never know anymore. Um, I've got a Babel fish in my in my head. I've been watching uh, a lot of Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, which is wow. on Hulu now. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, like. I, I dug the character, um, you know, like I, I, the performance was really good. He was definitely believable. Um, and, and obviously there was chemistry between the two actors There's chemistry between the two characters. Uh, so you can see that there it's a love interest. I'm hoping that it's kind of a faint unless it's going to be something more substantial, uh, you know, what we got to see in a preview of upcoming stuff in the season was one was the two of them kissing at some point. Um, I, I, I would like to believe that they're just, uh, trying to, to, uh, zig when we think that they're going to zag and it's, they've been telegraphing this relationship so that it won't happen. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see, but if it does happen, I'm, I'm with it. It's like, uh, he's a cool, he's a cool cat. Sure. With, yeah. with a cool cat. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be interested to see what happens with grudge. I, uh, I like that. Well, um, l- let's, let's move along with the plot. So the pair return to Booker's ship where they're surrounded by henchmen from Requiem. After one of them demands the ship's access code, Booker replies, that would be sticky. The ship decloaks and a large cargo hatch opens to reveal a large creature, Molly the Transworm, resting inside. Molly kills and eats two of the henchmen before the rest of them all beam away. Molly then eats Burnham whole, but Booker, using his telepathic abilities, convinces her to spit Burnham back out onto the beach. I really, really didn't know how this day was going to turn out, a startled Burnham coated in saliva says. Booker ultimately reveals that he has intended to save Molly and return her to a sanctuary to be with her own kind, especially as without the Federation, nobody exists to enforce a restriction on hunting endangered species. After Booker and Burnham return Molly to the sanctuary, he reveals he may know someone who can lead them to discovery. So for this part, it seemed to me like a pretty critical moment in terms of defining Booker's character. Uh, the idea that he's not just, you know, the the typical spacefaring smuggler that we've seen in a thousand other things before. He actually has a higher purpose that he's trying to serve. 
and he's serving that purpose uh, as a direct result of the absence of the Federation. That immediately endeared me to him more. The idea that, um, you know, th- that he's focused on something like animal welfare and is willing to go to some pretty extreme lengths to, uh, to ensure that his mission in front of him is fulfilled. I liked that. And it also raises additional questions about grudge that I'm going to be looking forward to seeing. Um, maybe grudge is a flirkin. I don't know, but, um, either way, uh, this is a, a moment in the, in the episode that really endeared me to Booker. Uh, but what about you, Cicero? Uh, did, uh, did that moment endear me to Booker? I mean, I, I, I was already bought in, um, you know, like you could definitely tell he was, he was a smuggler with a heart of gold. Um, it was clear that he was a good fighter when he was fighting with Burnham. Um, so I, you know, I don't think that he was actually necessarily trying to kill her at that particular moment, but then what he realized was that he couldn't, mm-hmm. uh, with Burnham, uh, really, really quickly into that fight. Um, but, but I definitely saw at that, in those moments that he was, he was someone of, of good moral fiber, you know, whatever, whatever it constitutes as good moral fiber in, in the 33rd century or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. Um, whatever at, we at can that, possibly understand, you know, to right, 11 centuries right. in the future. Uh, yeah. yeah. But like it, he, you know, he, he seems like a, he seems like a good dude. He's a cool cat. And uh, um, everyone needs, everyone needs a, like a, uh, a, uh, 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 scruffy looking nerf herder, you know, <laughs> um, in on on their crew, and, and that's that's who he is. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I like about it is that you get these kinds of soloish vibes off of him at first, but the idea of him actually serving something larger, uh, right. you didn't get that from Han until the very end of A New Hope, right? And um, right. Coming out of the gate with that for Booker, I I found uh, I found that to be a good choice personally. But uh, Zachy, what about you? How does how does Booker strike you by this point in the episode? And um, and also too, what do you just make of the way that the action looks? Well, I I think you know the the we're we're meant to, you know you said Han Solo and I mean he he fits pretty snugly into that Han Solo archetype by design i mean the 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 big cat is his chewy you know like right right it's meant to make him kind of seem lovable so so i'm i'm i i I like the character i i hope i can't imagine that they are setting this up for some kind of a heel turn but i hope that doesn't happen because of course every time i say that i i I shoot myself in the foot because i think i said (laughs) captain lorca i was like one thing I know for certain is he's ridiculous, I tell you. If he's mirror book, I'm going to be really pissed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I like it. No, speaking of the action, I like it, man. It's different. It's like, I like th- this idea of just like, let's, let's really, uh, you know, g- sort of, throw the word star trek against the wall 
and see what makes it work, you know? And so they're, they're, they're doing stuff that even, even as I was watching it, I was like, Oh man, I know Twitter is going to be pissed off about <laughs> a lot of this, you know? Yeah. You know I mean, and, and yeah. it's like, I, I keep saying this, I'm like, you know, the, the Trek era from 87 to 2004, that, that is, that is some quality television. And if that's what you want, it is there waiting for you on like every streaming platform known to man. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what's the point of going back into this universe if not to kind of, you know, shake up the cereal box a little bit? Right. Like, let's right. do that. Like, you know, that's I, to me, that's that that's what makes me intrigued. And, and I, I'm willing to say up front, beginning of the season, I may at the end of this, I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, it didn't really work for me. And I'm, I'm if that's the case, then so be it. But I, I I like the idea of going on a journey where I don't know where I'm going to end up. You know? Yeah, the fact that that's even a risk is in and of itself strangely refreshing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, oh, I agree. Oh, man. Well, let's, uh, let's move along with the plot. So, as I said, Booker reveals he knows someone who might be able to help find Discovery. He takes Burnham to an old Federation space station where they find Sahil sitting at his desk. Burnham identifies herself as a Starfleet officer, and Sahil identifies himself as a Federation liaison. Burnham asks him to search for Discovery, but he's unable to locate it because he can only scan a radius of about 600 light years because long-range sensors on the station have been failed, or they have they failed decades prior. So um, every Federation outpost that exists is generally pretty isolated from itself. Sahil asks Burnham how she's unaware of the current state of the galaxy. And that's when she reveals that she time traveled from before the burn and the collapse of the Federation. Sahil says he's not a commissioned officer as no one remained to officially swear him in, but that he maintained the office on board the station waiting for someone representing hope to arrive, such as Burnham. Sahil says the Federation flag that he's held in his possession for generations can only be raised by a commissioned officer and asks Burnham to raise it. Burnham commissions him to serve as an acting communications chief to search for discovery, and they raise the flag as Burnham promises to find her ship and others who believe in the Federation. I was very unstable after this moment. I will just I will just say it right out front because you know up through the majority of this time I'm I'm open to the journey that this episode wants to take me on but also by design I'm sure it doesn't quite feel like it needs to at least in terms of my own personal preferences for what constitutes Star Trek and this scene between Sahil and Burnham totally wiped all of those preconceived notions away and has me actually very actively excited for the rest of this season because I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I think you guys have gotten the impression before I'm, I'm a sucker for the idea and the ideal of hope being represented by the United Federation of planets. It's something that I honestly would like to believe is possible in our own future someday. And that makes me very prone to being a believer in those ideals, especially when they are um, underpinned by infinite diversity and infinite combinations and embracing the best parts of ourselves. That's the 
key core tenet of the entirety of Star Trek to me is that inherent hope and optimism for our future. And here comes this season that says that hope and optimism was, as, as Captain Kirk once said, a dream that spread throughout the stars. And the dream has been dead for centuries by this point. But that spark exists to light it again. And, um, and I know it probably sounds hokey when I'm talking about it like this, but that's what I want from Star Trek. I want that, I want that optimism. I, I want people to have a reason to feel it. You know, I want people to think that there is something worth striving for that is achievable when we pool our resources, we get past our petty differences, and we just strive to achieve for the sake of achievement and for the sake of advancement. And all of that stuff was at play in my mind as I was watching this scene. The idea of bringing that stuff back to a galaxy that had lost it. To me, that is a singularly compelling idea that can carry an entire season of a Star Trek TV show, especially one that's set this far forward. And I said when we recapped our perspectives of season two of Discovery that you know, I was kind of bummed that it was leaving the 23rd century because I like that era of the Federation and I would like to see more unanswered questions answered. But that part is covered now. We have strange new worlds to look forward to. And I can, I still have that stuff to, uh, to wait for. And I'm really excited for it. But to me, this scene is what clinches the concept of going so far into the future because they're looking without even realizing that it's something that the crew of the discovery was going to do. It's a quest for restoration of those ideals and of hope to people that need it. So this was one of perhaps the best season premieres in the franchise that I've ever seen. And, uh, and it's all because of this final scene. And it's also due in no small part to the actor who played Sahil because that was a shockingly powerful performance I thought. And, um, and the idea that let's see his, the actor's name is Adil Hussein. Uh, I'd never seen his work before. Uh, I'm not sure how, how it, it looks he like was, he, he was in life of pie. Oh, okay. And I've never seen that. Oh, but, great. Great film. I've heard that. I just never got around to it. But um, no, this was uh, for for everybody who who doubts Discovery as true Star Trek. And I don't normally like to give those people the time of day because that's that's a discussion that often starts in bad faith. But really, the the conceit of this scene to me not only defines this episode. But it potentially defines this series, especially since we know that this series is staying in this time frame for the foreseeable future and probably for the rest of its run. And uh, I liked it. I'll just put it that way. Um, Zachy, let's go to you. How about you? What Did, uh, did you like this scene? Um, maybe you didn't like it as much as I did. I probably liked it more than a rational person should. But uh, I'm curious about how it landed with you. No, I, I, I'm, I'm with you in terms of, you know, it, the, the, 
and I agree the performance helped a lot, but you know, it, the, the concept of, of what the Federation represents, it represents the goodness in all of us. Right. I mean, the, what, what Star Trek in the past have shown has shown us is that this is an organization that through the, the, you know, they don't, they don't, uh, enforce uh, their rules through you know uh gun gunboat diplomacy you know but instead it's a it's an organization based on mutual cooperation well that's i mean you know in an ideal world that's that's what america should be i mean obviously it's not right uh and so in many ways you know you, you drew a parallel with everything you know with our current sort of political moment and that's that's you can't convince me that that this uh, storyline was not, in some way, shape, or form, a reaction to what's been going on uh, in our country for the last several years. Right. Uh, I mean, it's you know the same way the Zindi arc was a response to nine eleven. I think this is a response to to Trumpism. You can't convince me otherwise. Right. Lost in the wilderness for the moment, right? Yeah. Just- trying to trying to find it again yeah no i think that that's that point is well taken cicero how about you how did this last scene land with you oh it, yeah it, it was it was very very patriotic uh, um you know th- there was definitely um uh, man you know like it, yeah i guess patriotic is the is the better word than than to say it was jingoistic um but but like <laughs> but um but it is it it was very much like you know what what you said uh chris that that it was about um reminding uh burnham uh reminding the galaxy at large reminding us as the viewer uh and reminding america uh you know through us that there are you know there were ideals that at one point we either may have achieved, but we, you know, even if we never achieved them, we always strive for them and that someone has to continue to do the things and be the person to, uh, to be the guardian and, you know, until an adult enters the room and is able to help us set right what has gone off course uh, and that that is what Burnham was there to do, um, and it was it was beautifully set. And I'm you know I'm really looking forward to seeing what role Sahil has uh, going going forward in in the season. You know I hope that he's not just here for a couple of episodes. And once we get to once we get back to the ship and we get back to the crew, that we don't see this character again. Uh, you know, obviously if he's not going to be on the ship proper and he's just going to be at this, at this station, hopefully we, you know, we, uh, we come back to him during the course of the, of the season as they hopefully set, set right. What happened to the Federation as they rebuild a Federation 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Well, um, that's the episode. Uh, so in terms of, uh, just your, your basic final thoughts on how everything combines, uh, Zachy, start us off. What do you make of this episode as a whole? 
it it does a good job of setting up, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the question that drives the season, but also being a really nice mission statement. I mean, you know, we get a nice contrast of, you know, here we are, our uh, protagonists are 900 years out of time. And so then the question really comes down to are those values that define not only their lives but their entire reality are those archaic do they have any meaning uh, uh, you know uh, 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 a millennium removed that's i mean isn't that interesting yeah yeah absolutely very well said cicero how does everything combine for you when you look at the whole episode uh yeah it was it was a great first episode um uh, I do have a gripe and, you know, and it, it, I don't know if it's a petty one or not. I don't know. Um, but, but like, we didn't see the crew. We didn't see the rest of, and, you know, I know that's part of the story. I know that's part of the, the mystery that is yet to be solved. Um, but we know they're going to be back. We know that they're there. Um, but, there aren't that many episodes in a season and to have one that was completely devoid of this crew to create some weird either. I don't know if it was, if it was supposed to create a weird sense of drama, like, Oh, is the ship going to be here? You know, what's going to happen. Um, but like, we don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of time with this crew. Um, so I would love to see them as much as we possibly can. And we didn't see them in this episode. Sure. And um, I think that's but, understandable. Yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, outside of that, like if, 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 if we're trying to serve two masters, I understand what, that they had to serve the narrative master in, in this, in this particular instance. And, and, you know, and hopefully when it's all said and done, it pays off, you know, like that that was the right decision to make. And I'm trusting that it was like, they thought about it and, and this is the decision that they came up with. Well, also too, you're a Saru Stan, right? Yeah, that is, that is also correct. <laughs> also, also factual. Yeah, of course. And I'm looking forward to seeing him again too this week, but uh, no, I think that that point is well taken. This is a very kind of isolated start to the season without the, the rest of the characters. And we still, you know, it, it's the questions rattling around in my head as we get ready for the second episode is that, well, I mean, I think Giorgio is going to be on that Section 31 show that's still apparently in development. How the hell is that going to One of my biggest questions. I'm yeah. so confused by, by that. Yeah. I mean, it seems like they're pretty effectively cut off from the 23rd century. Presum- but hey, maybe... I don't know, maybe with the revival of the Federation comes a revival of Section 31. But uh, but I think Ash Tyler is supposed to be on that show too. So yes. lots of questions about that. Yes. But um, yeah, and obviously I like the episode too. I'd like to, um, to, uh, to toss us out by actually going over uh, the continuity notes for this episode compiled by the fine editors at Memory Alpha on this episode's individual page. So obviously this is the first episode set entirely in the 32nd century. Events in the 32nd had previously been referenced in Perpetual Infinity, another Discovery episode. Um, Because this episode takes place in the year 3188, it's set chronologically later than all, but at most 
two other episodes of Star Trek produced to that point. Living Witness from Voyager is set anywhere from the 31st to the 38th century with the bulk of the events covered in the episode happening around 3074. And Calypso, nearly a millennium after the crew of the Discovery abandoned the vessel, though it's unknown when that event occurs. That was a short trek. Uh, I like Living Witness as a Voyager episode. I thought that one was fun, where the Doctor has to set the record straight about the crew uh, a millennium. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Temporal Wars, including the Temporal Cold War, impacted Jonathan Archer and the NX-01 on numerous occasions. Booker mentions the Gorn are active in the 32nd century, in addition to past appearances in the original series and the animated series and Enterprise and Lower Decks and uh, the Gorn skeleton that was displayed in Lorca's lab in season one. This episode constitutes the first evidence that Burnham is aware of the Gorn, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Booker mentions a quantum slipstream drive previously used in a few episodes of Voyager, including Hope and Fear, Timeless and Think Tank. And Solar Sails, which were last seen in uh, Explorers in DS9 and mentioned in Star Trek IV. Recrystallizing Dilithium was also mentioned in Star Trek IV and um, in the short Trek Runaway. And Booker also mentions Trilithium, best known for its appearance in Star Trek Generations. The flag of the Federation displays considerably fewer stars than previous iterations, only six. Uh, this suggests the Federation may redesign the flag about every 20 years. It seems like kind of a supposition, but okay. And uh, this episode includes the first appearance of a Beetle Geysian, specifically Cosmo Trait, since Star Trek The Motion Picture and the, uh, the Amazerons appear for the first time since Star Trek VI, marking their only TV appearance. And the Lorians, best known as the species of Morn in DS9, make their first live-action appearance since the DS9 finale, and uh, they also appeared in an episode of Lower Decks. Cardassians show up and appear for the first time since um, an episode of Enterprise, actually, Dead Stop. And um, in addition to the Orion language, some holographic displays also feature the Malkorian language. So already they're packing a lot of... uh, a lot of Easter eggs into this show and it's starting to give us sort of a sense of, wow, this is after everything. You know, if Burnham is occupying the same space as Cardassians and Lorians, then who knows what we're going to be up against in the weeks to come. But um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see how things shake out. But uh, any final thoughts before we dismiss? What's, what are your frames of mind as we get ready to take on season three of Discovery? Zachy? Um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm excited to see where things go. I, I agree with uh, Cicero's point about not seeing the actual, uh, you know, the, the titular ship and its crew. I think it would have been nice. Uh, but I, I, you know, maybe from, from a narrative point of view, if, if Burnham is our entry point, then we, you know, rather than sort of cutting back and forth, no, you know, we, we're going to find out the same time as she does what state discovery is in and, and what, what, where the crews ended up. So I suppose there, there's some appeal there of, of, you know, we know we're going to end up with the crew, but how we get there, we don't know. That's kind of interesting. Certainly. Yeah. Very well put as always Cicero. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know what Zachy said, like it is, uh, uh, and you know, I realized that Zachy kind of agreed with me. Paradox. Uh, no, we're in the infinite <laughs> loop. Um, 
so but like uh i'm you know i'm here for the ride and i've you know i've kind of been here for the ride um for the entirety of the series Mm-hmm. Um and you know we're all kind of in for the ride if you're gonna watch a show and and then tune in the next week to to see what happens, um so I'm much like you, uh but like I I'm excited for it I, I really love this show I think they're doing great things I think that uh as as Rachel said um earlier hashtag Rachel was right um that that entertainment you know big big budget entertainment is going to go through and, you know, a, a very uh, crucial evolution um, at, for what it is in, in, you know, in this new marketplace and in what society is. And I think while they're figuring that stuff out uh, shows like discovery with the production value that it has is going to be one of the things that, uh, studios will look at to see what see what is possible on these premium streaming subscription services, and and look to you know model their entertainment going forward. Probably after shows like Discovery, mm-hmm. so um, I'm very excited to see what uh, this show that I would prop up as some of the best. Uh, television from a narrative and effects standpoint on on uh, the medium uh, right now, uh, what it will do in its third season. Excellent. Very well put. Well, uh, I think that uh, that's going to have to do it for uh, episode 55 of Discovery Debrief. Again, a very big thanks to our panel. Sorry that uh, we couldn't have Rachel join us for the duration of the episode, but maybe next time. We'll see what Esri has planned for for our household. But I, I, I know that she wanted to talk about this show. She liked the episode too. Um, but uh, we'll we'll try and get her uh, her more longer lasting perspective on on the next one. Pray to the baby gods that that's the case. But um, thanks again to our panel members and of course to you. We hope you enjoyed this show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes and be sure to join us next time as we embark even deeper into the 32nd century with the crew of the Starship Discovery. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. Mm